Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Welcome to My Weight Live, everybody. There are all sorts of things that make us want to eat. Emotions, stress, celebrations, and habits. Habit hunger is what we're talking about on tonight's show with Dr. Paul Davidson, a bariatric psychologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Davidson, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Ansley, it's an absolute privilege to be here with you. So Dr. Davidson, we had the privilege of doing an interview with you several months ago. And one of the things that you said in that conversation is that there are several different kinds of hunger. There's physical hunger, emotional hunger, and something that we're calling habit hunger. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the different types of hunger? Absolutely. When we talk about physical hunger, we're talking about something that's biologically based. We have needs in order to get in food for energy to allow us to survive. When we talk about emotional hunger, we're talking about those that are fulfilling a mental health or an emotional need rather than a biological, physical need. We're talking about habit hunger. We're talking about something that's a conditioned eating pattern. So we see habit hunger uh, in its best form, if you ask me, when we thought, think about going to the movies. You know, for most of us, we go to the movies, we pair that with immediately what comes to mind? Popcorn and Popcorn. <laughs> Before you even step foot into the theater, you know, for the movie, you know, you can often smell that wafting through the air. And so you're, you're primed. It's just habit. It's not an emotional need. It's not a biological need. That's, I think, what we're talking about with habit hunger. And we see this play out in many, many different ways. Okay. So you laid out very nicely the, the kind of the different types of hunger. What are some of the ways that a person can kind of figure out what type of hunger they're experiencing? So first of all, as we said, the causes, if it's physiological hunger, it's nothing more than your biology telling you need food, you need to get calories in, you need energy in order to survive. When it's emotional, we're talking psychological, emotional issues. And with habit, we're talking about conditioning. When it comes to what types of things you might be seeking, if it's biological hunger, it could be almost anything to start to fill that need. If you're really hungry enough, you'll eat almost anything. If it's emotional hunger, it tends to be a very specific craving. Habit is typically learned with specific associations to events, such as going to the movie theater, such as you know sitting down to watch TV after a meal, in which you might want chips. Or if you go to a barbecue, you start to think about wanting uh, roasting marshmallows when you might not think of that at a other times or watermelon. When it comes to the kind of macronutrients you seek out, if it's a biological hunger, it tends to be nonspecific as you're going to need all of them. If it's either emotional or habit, more often than not, we're talking about carbs. Particularly in the case of emotional hunger, people are going to be speaking, seeking those things in large part because it's stress that tends to drive that type of hunger more than anything else. And when we get stressed, the brain starts to say, hmm, I better be prepared to run or fight from whatever this bad thing is, the fight or flight mechanism. And it's carbohydrates, especially simple carbs that turn to sugar quickly, that gives us the energy to do exactly what we need to do. So I said I'd share my most common habit hunger trap. And for me, it's really wanting dessert or something sweet after dinner. I've heard other people talk about kind of mindlessly opening the fridge when they get home from work or running an errand. You've talked a, a, a little bit about some strategies you might suggest we use to avoid just kind of 
eating out of habit. Are there any other strategies you might suggest we might use? I think part of it is is being able to separate what's a need from a want. And the fact is that dinner is a need. Dessert is a want. <laughs> and often it's the wants that are most satisfying, though. Uh, and what I, I love to encourage people to do is rather than eliminate, I, I do encourage people to use substitutes. So, for example, if you're in the habit of having something after dinner, maybe you could try you know, having a piece of fruit instead of a piece of pie or ice cream or you know, cakes or something along that line. Substitution is a much easier way to get moving into behavioral shifts. Uh, and you can have some fruit that's absolutely delicious. And with every season, there's a new fruit that's in. So you can try that. I think finding other habits that take the place of it are of the temptation are great. So anything that's going to remove you from the source of whatever it is you're craving is going to be helpful. So, you know, going for a walk outside for a few minutes, that tends to be a wonderful type of a habit to try to, you know, cultivate. Uh, spending time with kids or a pet or calling somebody up on the phone. Those are great things. Enjoyable distractions such as watching TV or, you know, following a hobby or texting somebody are great. Another simple thing that I encourage people to do, brush your teeth. And if you really want to go whole hog, floss your teeth too, because <laughs> nobody wants to floss twice <laughs> after dinner. So those kind of things leave your mouth feeling really nice, or you can fresh. use a mouthwash. Something like <laughs> leaves your mouth feeling great. And the last thing you're thinking of doing is eating something. And if anybody has brushed their teeth, knows or used a mouthwash, usually food does not taste very good right after you've done that. So those are other uh, things you can try. So I think a really good suggestion you're, you're making is trying to not eliminate something, giving up something cold turkey, but rather replace it. So maybe instead of of dessert, I might have some hot tea or a piece of fruit, kind of having something else to look forward to rather than just saying, well, I'm just not going to have dessert. Can you give a few concrete examples of swaps that you might recommend to your patients? Let's just say as a hypothetical example, I'm a chocolate lover. What are some other options I might explore instead of having that brownie after dinner every night? We can look to things that we know are healthier, such as a piece of fruit. But if you're a chocolate lover, I think it's always easiest to start to replace the less healthy versions with a healthier version. So if you love chocolate, you can have a chocolate protein bar, for example, that is delicious, that tastes like a candy bar. Uh, but maybe very high in protein, low in carbohydrates, and give you a fair amount of fiber. You can also look to some wonderful resources that are available on the web. You know, uh, Skinny Taste happens to be a wonderful one. Uh, the World According to Egg Face happens to be my absolute favorite. Sometimes carob, which is where some of those flavorings come from, or cocoa bean, tend to be a lot healthier. And you can make things, for example, that use a chocolate uh, protein powder that will give you that flavoring, but won't give you all the unhealthy things that you might tend to see. If somebody is a chips eater, for example, they like the salty, crunchy things. Mm -hmm. Swaps that I try to encourage might be roasted chickpeas or fava beans. You can make a lot of these things at home for almost, you know, for very little money. You know, it's about a dollar per can of beans and you can roast them in your oven and you can salt them, flavor them however you like. Very low calorie, give you a little bit of protein. We can do the same thing with soybeans. Those are other options. Uh, so I think those are the directions that I like to turn. Find something that you swap into that somebody actually enjoys. If you buy yourself a protein shake or make yourself a protein shake, say chocolate or vanilla, and you put in a paper 
plastic cup and stick it in your freezer, lo and behold, you can make an ice cream or popsicle kind of treat. You can do the exact same thing, you know, with healthy uh, fruit juices and things like that that are low calorie. So that gives you another option as well for a swap. So get creative, look out there for other recipes and, and healthy swap ideas. We'll definitely link the, to the two uh, websites you referred to in the comments. So folks be on the lookout for that. I guess one question I have for you is we hear a lot from the dietitians and healthcare professionals that we work with that making those swaps at first can be challenging, but it really does become second nature over time. Can you talk a little bit about like how, you know, you can really train yourself to to like whatever it is that you've, you've done enough times? I think that anything that's, that's challenging, you know, we achieve by taking small steps. If you start by just cutting down on what you're doing, that's a great first step. So when I had people who were drinking a lot of coffee, for example, I try to get them to just, instead of having five or six cups a day, let's move towards four or five cups and then it's three or four and then it's trying to go half and half and then it's going to decaf and or even before we go to decaf it may be moving to iced coffee which is a healthier version because you get more hydration less Mm. caffeine in it as a result so i think those are steps you can take and then slowly blending in food substitutes which are an awful lot healthier or trying to get people to have vegetable sticks, which they might not go for, but if they put them in a dip, they're much more likely to have them. And I have a patient who was really creative, as many of my folks are, who takes cottage cheese and she whips it up in uh, you know, one of the Food Ninja kind of items until it is a sour cream consistency. And then she blends in onion soup dip, onion soup mix, you know, and then she gets a dip that is almost identical to what you find if you have it for sour cream. But it tastes great and it's just much healthier, high protein, low fat. So I think it's finding those substitutes. And, you know, I mentioned a couple of websites already where you can get a lot lot of those ideas. So I'd encourage people to follow that as well. Oh, those are some great suggestions. I can't wait to try that with cottage cheese. Give them a shot. Why not? (laughs) Nothing to lose except wait. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. So you said two things. One, uh, healthy swaps. But two, eating less of something is also a good option. What would you say to someone who says it is just impossible for me to eat something like chips or candy in moderation that I just have no self-control? So if somebody has no self-control, you know, I give them credit because at least they're being honest. So in those cases, I trust them. And I say, don't bring it home. Whatever you do, don't bring it home. If you really, there's, I never, ever tell people you can never have it again. You know, it's like, do not think of chocolate chip cookies. That's all you're going to think about. <laughs> all you're going to think about is chocolate chip cookies. And if I say, you can never have another chocolate chip cookie as long as you live. All you're going to want is chocolate chip cookies. So I think it's foolish to tell people you can't have things. And I've worked with people who said you shouldn't have this at all. And I was like, no, it's not about... No, it's about where you're going to have it. If you really can't control it, the easiest thing to do is do not have it at home. Or if you have it at home for somebody else, put it someplace that's hard to get at. So put it up in a a high cabinet, someplace where you're not going to see it. I encourage people, if they want it, go have it outside. You want ice cream? Fine. Go to place and have it. But since you can't control it at home, do not bring it home with you. Do not have that half gallon sitting in your freezer. So Dr. Davidson, do you encourage the people that you work with to be aware of the ways that food 
food marketers can use commercials and our devices to make us think about food and influence our food choices? All the time. You know, those those companies are paid millions of dollars with one goal in mind, and that's to get you to buy whatever it is they're trying to sell. They do not care if it's going to be healthy for you. They do not care if it's going to kill you. I mean, again, stop and think about people who are marketing cigarettes. And when they came up with advertising campaigns geared towards kids and teens... They don't care. All they want to do is move product. And so I try to help people understand you are going to be bombarded every day, almost all day, by ads, commercials. They're going to be touting some kind of product that may not be healthy. And so I think the easiest way to deal with that, watch less TV, cut down on some of that media. And for you know people who are online and they're getting pop-ups all the time, you know, I say, be careful about that. It's good to have a little less screen time, but also recognize that ads nowadays are targeted to the individual and they focus on the kind of things you search for, the kind of things you look at. So if you're looking at those things online, if you're searching them, if you're looking to buy them online, guess what kind of ads are going to pop up for you? The ones specifically that are going to be most difficult for you to say no to. So I try to encourage people as well to not search those kind of terms and to find if they're going to do it, start looking for things that are healthier anyways. So when you start searching items that you know that are better for you, they're going to start showing up uh, for you as well. And to recognize when they are trying to sell you on it, it's nothing more than trying to make money. It's not trying to make you healthier, or happier. And I promise you, if you go for those kind of things, you're going to be, you know, you're going to, the only weight you're going to lose is from your wallet. <laughs> Great way to put it. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> exactly. So you alluded to this earlier that, you know, stress can contribute a lot to emotional eating. So what are some of the strategies you recommend to people to learn how to cope with stress without food? So we have to, again, think about where is it coming from? And as I said earlier, it is a biological response to a perceived threat in the environment. The easiest thing to try to do to decrease the turn to food to deal with that stress is to cut down on the stress in the first place. Mm. So anything you can do to avoid engaging in that, you know, is going to be helpful. And some of those things clearly we cannot avoid. Same thing comes true when it comes to deadlines for things. If we try to work ahead of time, you know, and not save things for the last minute, we're not going to have as much stress. We're not going to create as much stress hormone. So we can cut it off at the knees, so to speak. But when we start to experience it, and it is biological, there are certain things that help reduce that stress impulse and the things that are going to get us to eat. The, one of the first things I tend to try to encourage people to do is deep breathing, diaphragmatic breathing from the gut, not from the chest. Typical person when they breathe, goes up and down, the shoulders go up and down. We feel the lungs this way. Not what we want to do. We want to breathe from here, from the gut. Down here. This doesn't move at all. When we do that, we get in a lot more air. We get more oxygen to the brain. And also we stimulate the vagus nerve, which is attached to the stomach and then runs to the brain. But when the vagus nerve gets stimulated, as it does when you feel full and satisfied from food, it sends a message to the brain that says, everything's fine. We can you know, rest and digest. And that makes you not as hungry. hungry. So when you actually engage in deep breathing, you shut down the stress hormones and you trigger a relaxation response, which cuts down on hunger. We also know that humor, laughter, is a wonderful way to cut down on stress. And it, it short circuits that loop 
And so finding something that's humorous to watch or listen to, to get laughing, you know, makes a difference. And again, anything that's going to cut down on stress is going to cut down on emotionally stress related eating. Another thing that makes a difference is meditation, you know, taking calm time. For many people, they might engage in yoga, for example, which is a wonderful, wonderful kind of uh, physical activity and that both it's great for the body, but it's fantastic for the mind. And it gets you to quiet down, calm down. I find the same things true in martial arts as well. There's a, a highly focused nature to it that gets you to cut out that stress response and helps teach you how to handle difficult situations so you feel calmer in general. Those are major factors that we're going to see. And of course, we can start to try to deal with cognitive distortions. When we start to experience stress, oftentimes our minds can run away with us and we start to think of things that may not be so accurate. Another factor that's just hugely helpful in short-circuiting stress without food is social connection and social contact. Finding ways to connect with others in person, getting together with a friend when you're when it's safe to do so, a family member, calling up somebody you haven't spoken to for a while. And along that line, another thing which really helps decrease those stress levels without food is physical contact. You know, if you have somebody to, you know, who can give you a hug when you need it, I mean, that goes a very, very long way. So those are a variety of strategies without the use of food. And of course, physical activity. How did I, I almost forgot that. Uh, <laughs> exercise. Sorry. <laughs> One of the biggest. <laughs> so, you know, going for a walk, a jog, uh, riding a bike. I tell people it's amazing the impact of doing 10 jumping jacks. We've been talking a lot about food and certainly healthy eating and exercise is very important for weight management and a healthy life. But the truth is that for many people, you know, focusing on diet and exercise alone is just not going to be enough to reach their best weight. So talk a little bit about why seeking medical attention is going to be necessary for many people who are struggling with weight. So we need to understand that first of all, the vast majority of weight issues are genetic. Roughly 70% of what a person weighs is determined by their biology. It also gets influenced by medical illness, by types of medications people may take on, by conditions such as polycystic ovarian syndrome or hypothyroidism, childbirth, menopause, certain types of strokes, you know, joint pains and issues, orthopedic issues, you know, all these can lead to weight gain. So there are many, many reasons why people are putting on weight that really diet and exercise alone is not going to shift, that we really need to take a look at biological treatments for a biological problem. So folks, if you're watching at home, there are lots of, of treatments available for obesity and excess weight. And, you know, starting by having a conversation with your doctor is always the right place to start. So you work as a psychologist for people who've had bariatric surgery. The folks who you've seen be most successful, is there a common thread between them? Is there something we can learn from them? There are actually quite a few things I think that we can learn from those who are highly successful. First of all, they show a commitment to sticking to the program. They have excellent follow-up. They often attend support groups. They keep their appointments with a dietitian, psychologist, surgeon, and so on. These are folks who on a regular basis have made a dedicated time time now to be physically active. They don't have to be running a marathon. Individuals who do well, they avoid taking in liquid calories. So they do mm -hmm. cut out the sodas and especially they avoid things like alcohol, all of which are empty calories. 
Another area that they focus on is practicing mindful eating. And by this, I mean chewing very, very thoroughly. And I tell people I want them chewing at least 40 times per bite, which seems like an awful lot, but it's just habit. I've been doing it for about seven years. It's just the normal way of doing things after a while. You know, take your time, use small bites as well. And if you're struggling with this, there are a couple of simple things you can try. And I think our patients have done this too. Try using chopsticks if you weren't brought up on them. It really slows you down. It's a little <laughs> awkward. Or use your non-dominant hand. You know, people who do well, they consistently prioritize getting in their water and then they focus on getting protein. I think another trend that I see in people who are highly successful is that they tend to be open about their experience. They tend to share with others. They're not ashamed or afraid to say, hey, I've had bariatric surgery and this is what it has entailed and it is difficult. Another factor for people, and this isn't just for bariatric patients, but one of the, the best things that we can see for anybody who's trying to lose weight is to utilize self-monitoring. Self-monitoring is nothing more than tracking data. We can do this when it comes to your weight, for example, weighing yourself on a regular basis, maybe weekly, you know, tracking your food, keeping a food log. And you can do this with pen and paper, or there are many apps on phones that we can use to track our food activity levels. You know, there are accelerometers that we have on our smartphones that we can use to tell you know, how far we've gone, or there are other kind of acti activity trackers that you can utilize. I think individuals who do well, you know, tend to see this as a lifestyle change, not a diet, you know, never ever see it as a diet. They yeah. see it as this is just the way they're going to be. And since it's not a diet, they don't resist it as much. We've been trained to resist diets because they're really unhappy for us. You know, usually they lead to misery and unhappiness. So I think that's the other issue. And the last thing I'd say as a, you know, a, a unifying factor is is when something is not going right, these are folks who don't wait too long to start to address it. They're willing to come in, talk about it, deal with it before it becomes a big problem. Much easier to stop things when they are small issues. Wow. Dr. Davidson, you have given us so many practical suggestions and takeaways tonight. Thank you so much for being here sure. with us. 